All right, thanks again, Van. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And so as Emily said before, too, if you're visiting today for the first time, uh, welcome. Glad you guys are, are here with us. Um, we are, uh, I think Peter was saying a little bit about this, we are in the middle, kind of the middle now of a series in Zechariah, which is the second book, second to last book of the Old Testament, one of the prophets. Uh, if you are new to it or the Bible or it's just been a while, uh, Zechariah is a prophesying, which uh, basically means in, ter- in biblical terms that they're hearing from God, they're getting these oracles, uh, sayings, teachings essentially from God, commands, encouragements, graces to pronounce to the people of Israel, to preach to the people of Israel. Uh, and they're usually in connection with something. So at the end of the Old Testament, the people of Israel are in sin up to their necks, their eyeballs. They're being exiled away to other countries, other nations. But God is graciously also promising an end to that cycle of exile, which happens over and over and over again. If you know the Old Testament, if, if you don't, just take my word for it. It happens over and over and over again. God promises an end to that cycle. And here at the very end, so Zechariah is one of the last prophets before Christ comes, ministering around 520 B.C., roughly, as waves of Jews are coming back from Babylon in the east to the promised land where God is symbolically truly present. God's promising a physical return, but he's speaking about a greater type of return as well. Physical return, a greater type of spiritual return to him. So he says, return to me, return to the land, and I will rebuild what was destroyed. But as you're doing that, repent, turn away from your old life, and understand that, and here's the good news, I am returning to you. So it's not just, a, not just an invitation to return to him. That's, there's a lot of good news and hope in that too. That's a part of it. But the greater news is the promise that I am returning uh, to you. So therefore, he kind of enables that, that return on our side uh, as, as well. So uh, just a quick uh, reminder, uh, or if you're hearing this for the first time, great. Uh, I encourage you to use this as you read uh, this section of the Bible. But when we read the prophets, we need to ask two questions. In light of what I just said there, we need to ask two questions primarily. One, how does this passage get us to Jesus or some other New Testament reality or principle? And then two, kind of hanging off that one, it's kind of one question with two sides, but the second question, what biblical language does it use to get us to him or to there? So the, the, the book, these books in the Old Testament use, they're talking about Christ, but they're using Old Testament language. They're kind of veiling him a bit in Old Testament language, promising better versions of the things that Israel experienced in the future. So when we know how Jesus then, if we kind of read, read the New Testament back into the Old, as the New Testament does itself, as Jesus himself encourages us to, as we see the connections between the Old foreshadowings and symbols and pictures and Christ, we can then understand the book. We can see, oh, that's how Jesus is being referenced or imaged or kind of hoped for, held out as hope for the people of Israel and the world uh, watching them. So, because the reality is, without Jesus, Zechariah will remain hopelessly veiled to us. There's no way to understand Zechariah properly without Jesus Christ, because he is the whole point. He's the completer of the vision. He's what, he's what Zechariah is seeing, what God is intending him to see. And so if you don't know Christ, if we can't read him back into it, if we can't connect these dots especially a book like this. I think it's true for all of the Old Testament in a way, but especially for a heavily, deeply symbolic, or again, apocalyptic, which means hidden things. These very, very hidden visions, uh, type of like subgenre of sorts of prophecy. These hidden visions, uh, they, they will remain hopelessly veiled. We'll just throw our hands in the air and say, I have no idea what that means. If we're trying to understand them aside from Jesus, we'll poke in the dark, we'll guess at best, but we'll probably just kind of move on and... Um, 
place the prophets back on our shelf to collect dust. I mean, there's a reason why this book, these types of books don't get read a lot sometimes as Christians, even people who know better, is because they're just difficult to read. And that's never going to go away. But the way we can decipher them, the best way, and they'll still be difficult, the best way to decipher is to ask that question, where's Christ here? How does he blow at the haze of the fog of confusion away from the passages? So to digress a little bit, uh, kind of off of that, I think there's a lesson in that too for our lives. Um, you know, I, and I'll just say this as a Christian, and I'm sure a lot of you guys can resonate, but uh, before I was a believer, I would say my life was very chaotic. It's still chaotic, but less chaotic maybe. Uh, chaotic, suffering-ridden, mundane, directionless. And I would say as part of my story, uh, some, we say this a lot as Christians, some version of this, that Jesus gave my life meaning. Right? So we, we say that, or we intend that, we sing that. He gave my life meaning when before it was directionless. Uh, suffering's a great example, is just to point at that one for a minute. I feel like before I, for, before I was a believer, my suffering was random, it was chaotic, it was directionless, meaningless. I had no idea why it happened. But as a Christian now, Jesus gives meaning to my suffering because at the core of my faith, at the core of the Christian faith, is the idea that God suffered and, and experienced evil and bad things and suffering to bring about good. He died for our sins, so for our salvation. He brings about good through it. So if that happened, if that's what God's intent was through his son, then if that happened over here, then that can happen here. And so he provides order and more meaning behind, behind suffering. But apply anything to that, the mundaneness of our lives, directionless thing. So I like that because it, it's, it's not just a biblical interpretational thing. Like we say that Jesus provides clarity to foggy, difficult to understand passages in this book. But he also blows up the haze of confusion around our lives as well. And he grants meaning behind uh, seemingly irreconcilable things that happen to us on spiritual or physical levels. So with that said, let's read Zechariah 4, 1 to 14. Uh, today we're going to look at this, uh, Peter said this, I think, too, not by might nor by power, uh, this is, these are God's words, but by my spirit, he says. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, but I encourage you to ask these questions when we read it. Whether you, you could be brand new to the Bible and still ask this and I think get something uh, from this. But wherever you are with the book, um, ask the question, what people, what objects, what themes here uh, lead us ahead in the story prophetically? They, they point ahead to Jesus Christ and him crucified in the graces upon graces, as Emily read earlier from John 1, the grace upon grace that he gives us through his death and resurrection. All right, so let's read verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, 
what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? And I'll just stop there for a second. I, I think there's um, some sense of functional sense of humor to the angel at this point. Or I've got to think this, you know, like with God maybe himself saying, don't you know what these are a second time? He's asked a couple of times, you know, like the first time didn't really answer him. And he says, okay, going back to the two trees, you know, and the angel says, don't you know what these are? Zechariah's answer is basically, uh, no, I have no idea. Help a brother out here. And so then in verse 14, he says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's his answer, which, again, at that point, I picture Zechariah just kind of with a squint saying, what? Like, not helpful. You know, that's not, not a sufficient answer for my um, kind of library of knowledge here. But that's how it ends. That's how the vision ends. And, um, and it goes on. We'll pick up next week with um, something different. But to summarize this vision, and I've been doing this every week, if you're new, um, to at least explain the, the, the main objects and the people, which gives some context. And we'll go back and talk some details. But to um, summarize the vision... There's Zechariah, of course, who's the prophet receiving the vision. The angel is the one serving as the messenger from God. So when we think about visions, think they belong to God. All visions are his possession, but angels are messengers. So he sends, sends the angel to be a messenger and the decipherer of the vision, which we could argue that he's not a very good decipherer, but he's trying. So, uh, but regardless, he's the decipherer. Then we have temple furnishings. Um, these are the main important ones in the vision. There's a bowl of oil which supplies fuel to the lampstand, which there's lamps on top of that. I'll show a picture in a second. Um, and then there's two uh, olive trees. So I put a plus sign here because um, I'll get to this a little bit in just a second to explain more. But there's temple furnishings that Zechariah is seeing that were part of the Old Testament temple that are now being added to. So if, if you didn't know this, there are no, there's no such thing as olive trees, large olive trees touching this lampstand inside the Old Testament temple. That, that was never a part of what God designed the Old Testament temple to be. These are added features, added features. And the bowl of oil, too, hovering above, there's no floating bowl of oil above the lampstand in the Old Testament temple, too. This is a, an additional vision he's getting here that, that speak to us theology and some, something of God's character and something about the gospel. We'll get to that. And then Zerubbabel, we will see him come up again, I think, in this book. I'll mention him a little bit today. Uh, but just understand, he is a, a temple-rebuilding, kingly figure. Uh, he's a, an actual historical figure, a returning Jew, who was kind of commissioned with this kingly, temple-rebuilding, uh, city-wall-rebuilding, too, in a sense, uh, figure, linked elsewhere with Christ. He's actually linked, so in, in Matthew 1, 12-13, he is um, listed as a part of Jesus' genealogy. So he's literally the ancestor of Christ. And remember, we talk about ancestry of Christ biblically. We're not just talking about bloodline. We're talking about theological resemblance. So like, like David, was, for example, another, another big figure in the Old Testament was a king, a shepherd, ruled for a certain amount of years and slayed giants and uh, was a shepherd and all this stuff. Jesus kind of it resembles that. He, he completes that idea because he's, this, he's, this, he's the true David who kind of keeps on with those themes, takes them to new levels at, at the same time. So uh, even that statement, a temple rebuilding kingly figure might sound a lot like Jesus, and if it does, you're on the right track. It's supposed to. It's supposed to sound a lot like Christ, and we'll connect some more dots here in a second. But just under, understand, though, he's in the genealogy of Jesus. 
So basically what we're seeing then here is a, a picture of temple restoration and rebuilding. Uh, God commanded Israel to build a temple in the Old Testament, first a tabernacle, a tent, and then a more permanent temple underneath uh, King Solomon. It was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, kind of pre-Israelite uh, or Judean exile. They're returning now. So as they're returning, God's promising a rebuilding of what was destroyed. It's a big part of what's going on here. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, you get the historical kind of counterpart to the prophetic genre here, the prophetic angle on what's happening theologically and historically. So I encourage you to read that if you haven't before, even if you have, uh, read it, read it again. But here's a really important caveat. The prophetic caveat is the visions of the new temple, so God's basically saying this is what the temple is going to look like as you, Zerubbabel, kind of oversee its reconstruction. The visions of the new temple far surpass in shape, size, and glory what the original physical temple was before Christ far surpass. And the differences are what point us ahead to Jesus. The differences are what speak theology. The contrasts are what say something new about what God's going to do in the future through his son. So it's a promise of sorts. God loves making promises to sinners. He loves making promises into hopeless situations, into gloryless situations. He loves doing this. So it's kind of like a promise. It's a vision a little bit different way of hearing a promise. God says it more clearly elsewhere. But here he's saying it in this, in this certain way. He's promising uh, a new, better kind of, uh, of temple. So what I want to do then is talk about this passage in two different ways. We'll look at two what I'm going to call gospel visions, uh, or visions of grace, visions of Jesus' death and resurrection beforehand, um, which, remember, are kind of the finish line or completion to all of biblical prophecy. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 1, something, that says all the, the promises of God, which include prophecies, find their yes in Jesus Christ. All. All means all. All the promises of God find their yes somehow in Jesus Christ. And the hard work with interpretation sometimes is understanding that. How? How does it do it? Sometimes it's super easy to see. It's very direct sometimes very hidden. Uh, but uh, Zechariah is probably more in the latter category, but, uh, but again, with Christ, um, we can blow out that haze a bit and understand these things. So the, the first gospel vision is the bowl above the lampstand, so the floating bowl of oil above the lampstand. What's uh, going on there? Clear as mud, right? Um, a, a lampstand, I have a picture here, uh, what it traditionally looked like. Uh, the lampstand was, there were several in the, the physical Old Testament temple. The lampstand was a traditional furnishing with seven lamps. You can see seven lamps on top of the stand. Uh, in this vision, though, again, underneath the floating bowl, bowl of oil, which is supplying oil symbolically down into the, the many lamps uh, on top. And it's, it's symbolically sufficient, it's symbolically perfect in the amount of, of oil that it's uh, supplying to uh, the lights. So we get that with the number seven. Sevens denote completion and perfection in the Bible symbolically, and sometimes uh, denote the divine uh, himself directly. So this is where the vision goes beyond how the original temple was furnished, how it looked, and just how it worked. The, the lampstand Zechariah sees is not this one. This is how it looked physically, but he sees something added to it. He sees a bowl above it, and he sees these lamps, seven lamps on top, each have seven lips on each of the seven lamps. So think like 49 ports, 
for the oil to pour into, which again, symbolically denotes perfection, like it will never run out. It's, it's the perfect amount of oil flowing into these lamps so that they will never, ever run out and turn dark. And so that's actually where it gets especially interesting is, you know, in the temple, this is from back in Leviticus, I don't have the reference, but uh, it, elsewhere in the Old Testament, <clears throat> it was the high priest's job twice a day to go inside the temple, trim the wicks on the top of these lamps, and pour more oil into, oil into them so the lights would never go out. That was the high priest's job. But that's not what's happening here. Really important to see that. That's not what's happening here. Here is floating bowl of oil vision. This is not high priest next to the lampstand trimming wicks vision. Very important to understand. Uh, in this new temple, this vision, this apocalyptic version, uh, we see the, the bowl and not, not uh, a priest. And, and so what's being seen by Zechariah in part is a new kind of temple that has no need for human involvement. No need for human involvement. Rather, God, who is above the lampstand, supplies light to the temple himself by his grace and power. That's what it means. That's what this first vision means. Now, how do we know this is the point? This is one of those moments in Zechariah you should just kind of stop and praise God and say, thank you for interpreting this for us. Because he doesn't always do that. But we have a little bit of a, we have the answer in the back of the book sort of thing here, right in the passage. Because uh, he says, right after this, when it's kind of questioned, what are these? The response is, this is the word of the Lord, speaking meaning into it and clarity. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who again is kind of over construction. This is the word. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is what it means. Not by human might or human power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. So not by human priests who trim wicks and supply oil and light themselves, but by my power alone to provide light and rebuild what is destroyed, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying true light and true rebuilding and true restoration, true salvation comes from me alone. Very interesting he says it this way. It reminded me this week when I was thinking of this of in the New Testament where it says, this is love, not that you have loved God, but that God has loved you. And through that love, sent his son to die in your place. Because you could have just said in that, in that 1 John 4 passage, it could just say, this is love, that God sent his son to die for you. And that'd be true, right? But before it talks about the God piece, it's very clear. It's humbling, but actually very joy-giving too. It's humbling. It says, to be very clear, you have not loved God. You have not loved God. When you think of love, do not think of the love you have for God. That's not love because you haven't and I haven't. That's the whole point. That's a dark background against which the gospel shines all the brighter. Contrast. So God is careful in these passages to not just say, by my spirit, but to say, not by your might, not by your power to provide light and to rebuild and to save but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. True light always comes from God. And, and so remember then when you read this in the Old Testament, the very first week I talked about this idea of covenantal contrast or seeing how Old Testament things point to Jesus by being different than him sometimes. Sometimes they're similar, 
and they point to him that way. Sometimes they're very different, and they anticipate him in the contrast. And so the failure of the Old Testament things makes us long for something better and different. Hugely important to understand that when you read your Bibles. And especially getting glimpses of this grace-filled, New Testament-sounding statement embedded in the Old Testament proper uh, prophets. So remember then times are changing. When you look at this, you know, one of the things I think is this is not Old Testament language. Yet it's in the Old Testament. Uh, and when God made that covenant with Moses to Israel back in the earlier parts of the story, if you know that, when he covenanted with law, he covenanted conditionally. He made promises of blessing, but he tied it to an individual's ability to keep his law. It's very clear. Keep it and you will be blessed. You will stay in my land. I will remain close to you. Break it, and you'll be exiled. You will be cursed, in fact, and you'll be driven away from me. Like Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, exiled out from that first garden of God's presence, that will happen again to Israel. It was wrapped up with glorious promises of grace and God's goodness, but also this, again, caveat, this catch of conditionality. So when we hear this statement, actually you could say that, that to use this language in Zechariah 4, the old covenant proper in terms of the laws God gave and the conditionality therein was basically saying it is by your might, it is by your power, not my spirit, says the Lord. It actually is by your might, it is by what you do, it is by your internal willpower and strength, your ability to keep my commands. So to see this here, one of the things that this tells us at the very end of the Old Testament, not that we don't get it beforehand in the story, because we do, glaringly so, but the very end of the Old Testament, a few pages from here is Matthew 1, the first chapter of the New Testament. One of the things we're seeing in this statement is that the Old Testament is fading. It's fading and giving way to something new. Hebrews 8 in the New Testament says, when God speaks of a new covenant... The old becomes obsolete. Obsolete. No more relevance. It's not over us anymore. This is from Hebrews 8. And so it's quoting Jeremiah 31. When in the Old Testament, when the prophets talk about a New Testament, this is hundreds of years before Christ. And so already at this time, the old is kind of starting to become obsolete because the new thing is being spoken of. A new kind of temple experience is coming. One that will be based more on God's work and his ability to provide light and draw close to us rather than ours. And so it says here later in the passage, shout grace, grace to it. I love that in this passage that we have this type of theology mixed with shoutings of grace to this whole concept. It says shout grace. Don't whisper Grace, don't make it peripheral. Shout it and centralize, centralize it. Shout it as, as if it were a weapon of sorts against threats and contrary realities. And here that threat or contrary reality is pictured as a mountain. So the mountain's really important. Uh, the, and, and I think the question we should ask here, you know, we shouldn't be so quick to think and trivialize it by saying, what are the mountains in my life? You know, and think, well, man, I've got this coworker. Yeah, so let's pray for her to be leveled or something. Like, that's, that's not the point. 
Um, the point is, what does the Bible think about mountains? What, is, what do mountains represent to Zechariah? What would he have been seeing? And the answer to that is mountains biblically represent the entire Old Testament system. Think Mount Sinai, if you know that. But also just think on the Mount of Moriah, to use really ancient language, but uh, the Mount Zion or of Jerusalem is the temple itself. So if you see like language in the, in the Bible talking about going up to Jerusalem, they don't mean north, they mean up the mountain. It was up. It was on a mount. Temple Mount. I think of that idea and, and things like that. So, um, so mountains in the Old Testament represent allegorically, sometimes symbolically or typologically in other cases, prophetically, represent the whole of the Old Testament system. It was where God gave laws. It was where Israel received the Ten Commandments. It's where Jerusalem was located in terms of that hill or that mountain. The temple, it was all there. So it shouldn't shock us then to see grace shouted at a mountain, something that represents law. It represents that conditionality I was talking about before. It represents an old system that wasn't working. It shouldn't surprise us to see God really to Zechariah and through the angel, but to all the people to have this idea of grace, which means gift or undeserved merit. Something that he has to give, not that something we earn. We'd say that to each other, right? When, when someone's gracious to us, they're being extremely kind. They're doing something we don't deserve. It's uh, definitionally undeserved merit, but there's lots of ways to understand that. Grace, grace, and shouted, not whispered. The thing that actually saves us, God's grace, shouted at the thing that couldn't, the law or God's commands, moral commands. The thing that gives life, shouted at the thing that actually kills. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, I think it is, it says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. There it is, Spirit again, Spirit. The law kills us, we we can't keep it, but the Spirit builds us up and gives life. It's one of the biggest contrasts you see in the New Testament is Spirit and law. God's work by His Spirit and our flesh, or our ability to do good, to climb that ladder. It's one of the biggest contrasts you see. And here, spirit and grace are linked and mentioned, hint pointed ahead to. Not that God's grace isn't present in the old. God's telling a beautiful story here. He's not making a mistake. Christ wasn't God's plan B. He was painting a dark background against which to shine all the brighter. And part of the background is our inability to keep his laws. Our self-inflicted exile self-inflicted, exile from God's presence. What's happening here is shouts against that old system. He's fighting our battle. I love this idea of God speaking against the things that actually weren't working. He doesn't like not being close to us. Did you know that? He does not like the prospect and the idea of not being close to you. He's warring against that idea with shouts of, of battle cry and victory and the things that that prevented us from getting, getting to him. If you think about um, Christ's ministry itself, it's full of this stuff. Uh, Jesus is the one who embodies grace. Actually, Emily, this is a cool serendipitous thing. Uh, the passage we read this morning before worship was um, part of our just reading calendar throughout the year, but it's one I wanted to mention anyway. But Emily read from First John, or sorry, from John uh, 1, and it talks there about Jesus as the one who embodies grace that contrasts with the law. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. They're not blended. 
And Christ, who embodies that grace, butts heads and rebukes and surpasses and curses things that represent the Old Testament failed system. Here's just a few examples, though there are many more. If you think about this, Jesus, and especially towards the end of his ministry, though it kind of fills all of it, he breaks the Sabbath, according to John. He harshly criticizes Jewish religious leaders for their pride. Priests. He overturns money tables in the temple. Then he curses a fig tree and mountain, which represent Jerusalem and the Old Testament system in its entirety, for looking good on the outside but having no true fruit. And he tells again the disciples before his death that the temple would again be destroyed, and that happened in AD 70. So that's what the law will do. Uh, law will make us look good on the outside, but it can never change the heart. God cares about this. He wants our affection and our worship. He wants recreation. Law will poke at you. It will prod. Do better. Be humble. Love God above all things. Don't commit adultery ever, even in your mind. Don't ever think lustfully about another person ever again. Go. Don't murder. But here's the catch, Jesus says. Murder's actually in the heart and mind. So if you ever think like you hate someone, if you ever think wrongly of someone, if you ever think someone's a fool, you've murdered them in your heart and you're equally as guilty as someone who kills someone physically. This is according to Jesus. We don't think that way, right? But this is how Jesus interprets that law. Raises the bar. What's happening here in Jesus' ministry is he's butting heads not that the law is bad, the law has good elements to it, but it's, it's covenantal inability to change the heart and to save us is what's being upheaved and, and overcome. A lot of this comes from Matthew 21. Uh, this is right before Christ dies, actually. He's really heightening the problem between himself and, and Jewish re religious leaders. He says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. This is after, by the way, he overturns the money tables in the temple and has a pretty heated exchange with uh, priests and leader types in Jerusalem the next day. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, which might seem like overreaction, Jesus, you know, like it just didn't have any fruit on it. Come on, what's the big deal? But, but his curse actually is really theologically important. The fig tree withered at once because everything listens to the voice of God. Stormy waves, Fruit with no, or tree with no fruit on it, everything bends the knee to the king of the universe. Then it goes on. The disciples saw it. They marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. See the Zechariah imagery with the mountain? But note the, note the word, this, this mountain, not a mountain. This is not a lesson about the mountains of your life and how to believe God for big things. What mountain is he looking at? Jerusalem, the temple, which is up high. The essence of the Old Testament system, the law, the priests. See, he has anger and, and, a, and a, a willingness to curse and come against these things that weren't saving people, that were looking prideful and arrogant and full of religion, clean on the outside, but what, what does Jesus say to the, the priests of the day? 
the religious leaders, you are whitewashed tombs, perfectly white on the outside, but full of dead and decaying bones and rotten flesh on the inside. That is what the law will get you. That's what it gets me. It kills. The Ten Commandments will kill. But the Spirit of God, if he does everything, it will grant life. We need him. So we talk about Jesus cleansing the temple then as well. I mean, this is, when Jesus goes in and cleanses that by upturning the tables, that, that's a, it's a careful word because in one sense, Jesus does cleanse there. But when we talk about what he's actually doing for us, Christ didn't come into the world to kind of cleanse and make a little bit clean the temple system and say, okay, I want you guys to go back and worship in the temple. Old Testament continues. He's not cleansing the temple. He's upheaving it and throwing it into the sea, which biblically is a metaphor for evil and judgment and a curse. He's starting over. So in Zechariah, to see a mountain become a plain, See, guys, he's warring against things that weren't working. He's changing the system. This is part, one of the reasons why he was killed, why so many hated him. He was a threat to the status quo. People missed it. They wanted the old system. They felt good about themselves. They looked down on others for being more evil and good on themselves for being pretty great. They were proud. The old system on so many levels didn't work. And Zechariah is seeing this, or God is rather, He's writing about it. Jesus here fulfills it. So, so after all of this, what happens? That happens. Jesus doesn't, doesn't go into the temple and kind of cleanse it. The essence of your religion is Old Testament temple worship. He upheaves it, and in his wake is him. A New Testament, he says, by my blood, your, your trespasses, your sins will be forgiven. This is the plain in the wake of the mountain being thrown, you guys. This is the, the New Testament in perfect, glorious form. This is what stands between you and God now, the man on the cross, his love for you, his substitutionary death. That's it. It's a change. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth now come through Jesus Christ. He died for our sins rather than say, deal with it yourself, figure it out cleanse yourself. This is the way he cleanses now by his, by his blood. Or we could say, use this language from Zechariah 4. This is the new Zerubbabel. He's rebuilding now a temple, a new spiritual one for people now to dwell perfectly with God. He's the true king, the true restorer. This is why the church is called the temple in the New Testament. You guys, together, and me, we are more of a temple now than the Old Testament temple in its best days could ever, ever match up to. God is, is truly here among us, lives inside of us. That's the kind of the temple now that God, no more barrier, no more separating curtain. And that's what we see in the next section to, to move on here and heighten this a bit. The next gospel vision, which is basically this, um, really cool thing. You see in a golden lampstand with these two trees. So the next thing is the two olive trees next to the lampstand. So let me try to decipher this really quickly for the sake of time. <laughs> Take a stab at it anyway. And if you think at any point, yeah, I kind of see that, but I was thinking this, you're probably right. I mean, there's a lot of layers to this. There's a ton of angles we could take, so I'm just going to give you what I think is the main thing. 
going on here, um, and we'll uh, just go from there. But it's going to be quick. And if you're, if you're new to this, um, please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to fill in some gaps. Uh, so the first thing is the lampstand. So two things, really, lampstand and two trees. What do they represent? The lampstand represents the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. If you look at its design and shape, it represents an almond tree, and many of the temple furnishings, if you didn't know this, when God gave a temple in the Old Testament, looked Eden-like. When God gave a temple, he dropped a Garden of Eden down in building form amongst, amongst the people of Israel so that it said, I'm going to bring you back to Eden someday. That in, inside there were angels and pomegranates and fruit and trees. It looked like a garden. On that curtain between sinners and God was cherubim. Remember what happened back in, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were exiled? They looked back and who stood between them and the tree of life? Cherubim. Right? It was Eden all over again. And so what, what God is saying through the temple, there's so much to say about this, but succinctly, what God is saying through the temple in Old Testament times is, I'm starting to bring Eden back to you and you to it, one, but two, you still can't quite get to me. Too many barriers, too many curtains. There are uncrossable barriers here, too much sin. It's kind of a come close but stay away, uh, simultaneous thing that, the, that the, the temple says. But maybe the hope is that curtain will one day be torn and we can get into God's presence. The lampstand inside the temple then is one of these Edenic or Eden-like images. Uh, the second thing, uh, being the tree of life, the second thing is the olive trees, which represent the church. I get this from Revelation 11.4 in the New Testament, which just helps us here. Thank God for Revelation, uh, which says, these are, the, these are the two olive trees. There it is again. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. He calls in his two witnesses and then goes on to describe the church. And I won't get into all that today for the sake of time. We have a sermon on our website if you'd like to listen to it. Or better yet, just come talk to me. I love Revelation and talking about it so I can explain more. But it goes on to describe the church in Revelation 11. The church's ministry, prophetically, kind of apocalyptically there as well, symbolically throughout the ages. Those are the two witnesses. They represent the church. They're not individual people. So with those two things answered then, what is Zechariah seeing? What are the two olive trees next to the lampstand representing? The answer is an image of the people of God, us. Did you guys know you're a part of this, this vision? This is about us. Gathered around the tree of life. The people of God, again, gathered around touching, eating of its fruit, the tree of life. Again, an impossibility in Old Testament times. But remember, this is prophecy, so it's looking ahead to a time where this is going to be a reality. It's, it's looking ahead to Jesus. The only way to get into God's presence, to dwell among him again and him among us, that John 1 passage said earlier that Emily read as well, is Jesus came to dwell among us, right? It's through the God-man. And it's him who died on a tree himself to give us life and bring us back. You know, if you remember in Gen our Genesis series, uh, uh, last year was it? I was, I'm forgetting already, but... The last year, a couple years ago, we talked through Genesis. We, we looked at Revelation 22 at the end of the book, um, and both talk about a tree of life. The Bible begins and ends with mention of the tree of life, which nourished and gave eternal life to those who eat it. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, it says, on either side of the river, speaking of the new earth, when Christ returns in the future, on either side of this river that flows from the center of the city, 
was uh, the tree of life. And we also talked about how this uh, Greek word for tree here is the same word used for cross elsewhere in the Bible because it's true that Jesus died on a tree. And so when you, when you think about trees in the Bible, you should think about two trees, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and the cross. Those are the two important trees to understand. Nourished us, gave us eternal life. Sin happened, separated, exiled from that tree. How does God bring us back? By off, not, not by bringing us back to that initial Eden, but by giving us his son who dies on the ultimate tree of life to grant light into dark things. That we might nourish ourselves with his blood and body. This is why he says, eat my body and drink my blood. Just like God said, eat the fruit of the tree of life. We have to eat of Christ symbolically, but still very intentionally. We have to take in the grace he offers us. What I like about this image, too, is you can see the trees reaching out to touch the golden tree, which is like a sinner, I think, reaching out to touch the cross, saying, that's how I get in. This is how I'm saved. This is how I get nourished. Like the lampstand, Jesus' arms are spread out wide on that cross to touch and heal the nations. And here's the goal. This is what Zechariah sees. They, sinners who believe, will stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's the good news. This is, this is what's going to happen through Christ. People are going to stand right next to God and see his face. That's what his blood makes possible. That's good news. Truth for you and me today. And it only occurs by Jesus dying for our sins, not by law anymore. The mountain's been thrown in the sea. New covenant, man on the cross. So here's what I think is additionally amazing about this. Uh, it's, it's that God is showing us his vision and desire. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, sorry about that. It's like a, um, <laughs> it's, I put over here for a reason, and that's the one time I nail it. So uh, the, uh, what God is showing us is his desire, I think. So trying to get, trying to get too mechanical about this uh, or else just becomes like a thing. You know, but we should, we should feel the personal nature of God wanting this to happen when we see these visions. It's kind of like a, um, someone showing someone else a work of art that impacts them. You ever done that before as the person showing or the person watching? You know, kind of saying, what do you guys see? Even the angel here says that. What do you see? like an art history teacher, you know, like, like looking at this piece of art, saying, what do you see when you look at this? It's like kind of subjective, you know? Uh, this is what our teachers do. Tasha Irving was here earlier, and, and she's an art teacher. So I was like, this is true, right, Tasha? She's like, yeah. So it happens. But like, this is what happens. What do you see when you look at this? It's kind of like art class. But God is the one who is the artist, the painter, the sculptor. He's saying, this is my apocalyptic vision of what I want to be true in the future. Again, he can't stand the idea of not being with you guys. And so what, what I think then is what we have to let happen is we, we need to let God's joy inform ours. If we see a vision like this, it's okay if you're kind of like, man, yeah, I see that, but ugh, what? You know, I don't know if I quite feel it. It doesn't matter what you feel. God's the artist. You know, and I think our feelings will catch up to the truth, but... We need to let what God, God's joy, what makes him happy, uh, affect, affect us. And this one's personal. He's excited about that future prospect, as I was just saying, about being close to us again. So he's excited about bringing us back to Eden. And so he reveals it to us in this apocalyptic painting to gaze at. 
and says basically, look what I'm about to do. So here's something to chew on this week. God is more excited about being with you than you are to be with him. God is much more excited about being with you than you will ever be about being with him. That's the gospel. Every week I see some of you crying and some of you asleep. Sorry, I do. I just see it, so I I don't care. I know some of you work all night. I'd probably be asleep too, so I'm not, you know, that's fine. Some of you are like, you know, whatever. You're probably sitting next to someone who is impacted by the gospel more than you are every week. And the other side is someone who's not as impacted. But here's the good news. All three of you are equally saved. It doesn't matter. God's the artist. It's his grace to give. You know, he, he's crafting the greatest story ever told upon that one simple reality. God is bringing us back to a new Eden with a new tree of life. And it's his son on the cross. That's the way we get in. That's the way we nourish, get nourished, by his love. We shout grace. You know, he, he, he died the worst of deaths to make that a possibility. So it doesn't depend on your feelings or your excitement level. So relax and believe and return to God because he has returned to you. So two things then in closing here. Um, the angel says this to Zechariah, do you know what this means? I think that's a question for us as well. I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Do you know what it means that God shouted grace at law? Do you know what it means that he cursed things that weren't able to save you? He changed the system? Do you know that? Do you know that it's possible now through Christ to touch the tree of life, like actually touch it and be saved, that, that God wants to be with you more than you want to be with him? And then second, so that's a call to belief. If you don't know the gospel yet, believe. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. Partake of his fruit, the tree of life, and you'll be saved. Bring your mess to him. Second, um, and this is really important, I think, what contra-grace idea do you need to shout grace, grace to? I'm just going to list a bunch of things here, and I, I hope, pray, that as I'm saying this, you'll think of something else that's related, but also worthy of your attention and thoughtfulness throughout this week. Uh, but here's, here's a number of things that grace flies in the face of, lies. The lie that you're unloved, the lie that you can do anything whatsoever to save yourself, the lie that you're mediated to God by law right now, that you have to be good to keep your salvation, the lie that you're just tolerated by God like an employee rather than really wanted to be around, the lie that your main job is to serve God every day rather than to be served by him, the lie that God is disappointed in you, the lie that it's possible to sin your way out of grace, the lie that you're any closer to him after an amazing spiritual experience, because you're not. Through faith, you're as close as you'll ever be, no matter what. Or the flip side, the lie that you're farther from him after you sin grievously. 
The lie that you're less important because you don't make that much money. The lie that the cross is a moral example to follow versus the very power of God itself to erase your sins forever. The lie that you're better than someone else. The lie that you're better than your offender. Some of these are much easier to hear than others, by the way. The lie that you need to hide your sin to be accepted by other believers. I could go on. Which of those is it? Because the reality is the cross, grace, flies in the face, contradicts all of those lies. That's the truth. We need to speak against those things. So what is it this week? What lie about the nature of the gospel itself or effects of the gospel in your life are you listening to? And how are you shouting grace at those mountains? With that said, let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, for the cross of Christ and for these gospel images that only become clear to us on this side of the cross and the establishment of the New Testament through Jesus' body and blood. God, thank you that even back then you were starting to shout grace. You were starting to say New Testament things amidst the Old Testament to show us and to prophetically say this is, the old system is fading. It's going away. And now, although we passionately should pursue good because you have no speck of evil in you, God, we should be pursuers of the good. We also have this just statement in the gospel that we don't have to do good to be saved anymore. We have to just balance that, be pursuers of the good, but ultimately pursuers of you because you are the true tree of life. God, humble us, give us joy. Uh, Again, I always pray this for myself, but pray for everyone here. Trip me up, trip us up in grace. It's humbling, but it's the only thing that will build us up into a new glorious spiritual house for your spirit to dwell in. It's the only thing. Like Christ, you had to be killed before you were rebuilt as that true temple. God, may may grace wreck us and uh, rebuild us and humble us. Um, Shout grace, God, into our life. We need to hear it every day. In your name, amen.